You're listening to the weekly teaching podcast of Hope City Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. We hope that what you hear today inspires you to laugh, question, think, and grow. If you'd like to connect with us even further, hit us up online at hopecitypdx.com or shoot us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. All right, good morning, Hope City. It's good to be with you, as, as Jeremy mentioned uh, we're going to be continuing in this series, right? We've titled it What's Next. And, and I don't know about you, but the, depending on the season of life that you're in, you probably answer that question a little bit different, right? Because wherever you're at, well, what's next looks different. Some of you, uh, this fall, were you, it was the first time that you, you sent your last kid off to college. And so now you're empty nesters and you're like, Hi, nice to meet you, spouse, again, right? And you're going, what's, okay, what's next for us? Maybe, maybe you're in the, the phase of like, oh, it's just, it's grandkids and it's retirement, and so what's next is there? Or maybe like us, next weekend is our last weekend of soccer games. We are so, we have three every weekend that we've been doing. Yesterday was my, my wife's been out of town for the last week, so my mom's in town. She'll be at the next service with the kids. And it was the classic like, okay, I've got to call an old neighbor of mine to go, can I drop my kid off at your house at 9.45 in the morning so that I can make it to one kid's game and just wave and let them know that I was there to then leave immediately to go to another kid's game so that they could get my kid to the noon game. It's it's a mess. So for us, what's next is like, well, it's 9.25 in the morning. Let's make it to lunch, right? And so, so depending on where you're at, that, that's the case. I was talking to one of the moms recently on, on my kid's team, and one of the teams that I'm coaching, and the soccer mom was like, yeah, we feel like we're just kind of surviving through these things, not so much thriving. And yet, because we're both connected to church communities, I know, and talking to so many of you, that you're like, I know it's crazy. It flies by. So just enjoy, enjoy it while you have it. One day you're going to look up and go, man, we miss soccer. And I'm like, sure. Okay, right? Because whatever season you're in, God, God has put you there for a reason. And yet in the midst of that, we're still looking for purpose and direction. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is, is what is our purpose and direction? You know, I love that question. What's next? God, what is my purpose? What is the direction you have? Because for a, a, about a decade, I was a college young adult pastor. And I love that demographic. I loved especially getting to pastor it because I don't know maybe any other season in life. Whereas, is, remember, think back to when you were like 18 to 23 and those four to six years of college, whatever that, that was for you, right? That age range when you were like, gosh, the amount of decisions you're making as quickly as you have to make them that are then going to affect the next few decades of your life. I don't know any other time that we do that to people. What are you going to study? Are you going to go to college? Are you going to go the trade route? Are you going to get into the family business? Are you going to date? Or if, if you're not going to date, then, then, or if you are, then who are you going to date? And, and gosh, what does that look like? And, and all of these things that you're trying to figure out, who are your friends and who are your friends not going to, who are you, right? Part of it is because it's the first time in life that your purpose and direction is really your face going into that of you get to choose and you're not really ready. I saw a thing the other day, like 17 year old guy or a guy was remembering back when he was 17. He goes, I remember being 17 and I went to get my Limp biscuit tattoo. <laughs> All sorts of reasons not to get a Limp biscuit tattoo, but also some reasons to get one. And he said, I went in and he goes, and they wouldn't let me get the tattoo because I was 17. 
And then a few months later, I went to school and they allowed me to go $117,000 into debt for a degree that I'm never going to use. Right? He's like, man, what are, we, what are we doing to that age range? And, and I loved getting to, to pastor that group because then there was always this moment that came, same moment every time, about their senior year. That as they're moving into their senior year, all of a sudden they would come to me and they're like, hey, I, I need some, some help. I'm like, what, what's going on? And they're like, I don't know what to do next. Oh yeah, because it's been kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. Your next step in the purpose that you have has been mapped out. Yeah, there were decisions here and there, but then you get to that point of graduating college and we're like, congratulations, go figure it out. <laughs> and for the first time in their life, they were faced with like, but, but there's not a clear next step for me. I, I don't know. My, I was supposed to figure it out, but I don't actually know my purpose and direction and the world is my oyster and I don't like oysters. It's one thing to, to come to that spot when you're coming out of college, coming out of high school. But then what, what happens when you hit a new moment and you're like, wait a minute, I'm 35. I thought I was supposed to have this figured out by now. I'm, I'm 45 and, and 50 and 60, and now I'm understanding that I've got less in front of me than I have behind me, and I'm still not sure of my purpose and direction. Or life has shifted and changed, and you're like, I thought I knew what it was, but 2023 has been hard, and so I don't know what that looks like. Or maybe you're finding yourself in the 70s and 80s, and you're going, man, I am having to daily wrestle with grief in ways that I was not ready for. What is my purpose and direction now? What's next? And so I think all of us in different places and in different ways are asking this question, and trying to discern, God, what do you have for me? What is the purpose and direction that you have? And, and does the career that I'm supposed to go into actually matter? Is the one that I've been doing actually matter? I don't know. God has a plan for me. I think I understand that. But what if I've messed it up? So many huge questions. Well, I think God has something to teach us about this. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 to see what Paul has to say. But before we do that, we have to understand that when we're talking about purpose and direction, we can so often get caught up in what we're supposed to do or who we're supposed to be rather than understanding whose we are first. You see, our identity has to be wrapped up in Jesus. And that if I'm not anchoring myself in Jesus for my identity and actual purpose and direction, then what I do doesn't really matter. And so we have to understand there's a difference of going, no, I get my purpose, my direction, my identity from Jesus because he has died on a cross and risen from the dead in my place. I'm going to find it there. But then I get to go, okay, spirit, speak into what you want me to go do. This is actually what Paul does in the book of Romans. Paul's argument in the book of Romans, he's writing to a church in, wait for it, Rome. It's the capital city of the Roman Empire at that time. It's probably made up of about a million people or so. And so it's a diverse group of people. And in Paul, in, in their understanding of, of the way they would talk, there's kind of two people groups that he's writing to in Rome in the church. One is the Jewish population. And so he's going to write to them. But then there's also the Gentile population. And so it's the first time for those two demographics that now they, they were following like the Gentiles, the pagan gods and polytheism. Gentiles, the God of the Old Testament, who's also the God of the New Testament, but the God of the Old Testament. And for the first time because of Jesus, these two ethnically diverse groups of people are coming together 
to follow after God, and they're asking themselves, how do we do this? What's, what's the purpose and direction in all of this? And in Paul's teaching, he begins and he goes, hey, listen, I, we need to understand that everybody sins. Everybody's fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person has rebelled against God in their own ways and in their own rights. We've all looked at God and said, I don't need you. And he looks at the, old, the Jewish population. He goes, hey, the way you did this was, if you go read the law, which is the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, as God laid it out, that was supposed to help you see your need for God. And yet you rebelled against that and said, no, we've got it our way. And then he's looking at the Gentiles going, oh, well, see what you did is you sought after all of these other gods and tried to figure out in your own way. And that didn't work for you either. Both sides need Jesus that it's through faith that we come to Jesus and it's in faith that we continue in Jesus. That was actually week one of this entire series. And so Paul spends 11 chapters laying out our need for Jesus, what God has done for us that we could never do for ourselves, the grace that that is, something that you can't earn, you do not deserve, and you can never pay back, that it is just freely given to you. He lays out and he goes, this is what God has done for you. All of your life should center around who God is and what he's done. That's 11 chapters. And then in chapter 12, he goes, now that you know that, let's talk about how you live in light of that. Because it's all anchored in Jesus, now we can go, oh, what do we go study? Where do we go work? How do I go through life? You see, with, without anchoring 11 chapters in Jesus first, then what happens is we're just a rudderless ship. And you know, a rudderless ship just goes wherever the current goes. If it's going fast, it's going to go fast. If the current is slow, it's going to go slow. If there is no current, it's going to sit still. But the moment you put your trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in as your rudder. And now you can begin to steer your life towards the purpose and direction that God has for you, rather than just getting caught up in the current that you are a part of. It's why Paul spends so much time exploring who Jesus is. And in chapter 12, he makes this shift. And here it is in verse one. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. So do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Okay, so what is Paul saying at the beginning of here? Let, let's go back to verse one. He goes, I exhort you. It's an invitation. He's going, after, after everything I've just told you about who God is and what he has done for you, I now invite you into something. I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice. And this is a reasonable ask. You see, if Jesus has dealt with my death in the future, then I have nothing to worry about for all of eternity because I no longer have to be afraid of death, the one thing that's coming for us all, that and more taxes. But, but it's, it's, I don't have to worry about that anymore. And because I don't have to worry about that anymore, I get to now begin living my life abundant and free with God as my rudder. And so if that's been dealt with, then it is reasonable now for me to go, God, I'm gonna lay my entire life down for you. In other words, because God held nothing back from me, why would I wanna hold anything back from him? It is a reasonable 
ask that I can now offer my life without restriction to God. And so Paul encourages us to look at our entire life as a life of worship. And we do that by verse two. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good, well-pleasing, and perfect. See, he says, do not be conformed to the present world because he understands that the world we are a part of has a current. There's a current that we are all in and we can't get out of it. It's the world in which we exist and we live. And there is always a temptation to lean in and let that be the thing that we conform our thoughts to. But he goes, no, 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 don't, don't conform to that. Instead, let the Holy Spirit come and transform you by the renewing of your mind. The thing about the renewing of our mind is that takes time. Like, I wish that the renewing of the mind was, was like the butterfly going into the chrysalis. That when the caterpillar goes in and builds this little safety thing, that then all of a sudden, like, it's a struggle and it's thing and it's hard, but then it comes out and it's like, look at me now, I'm a beautiful butterfly. I wish it was that way. I wish I could just like go and be like, let me just like hunker down for a little bit. God, would you renew my mind here? And then I could just come out and I'm like, okay, it's renewed, I'm ready. But it's, no, it, it takes time, it takes maturity, it takes patience, it takes trial and error. Oh, that's why it says test and approve. He's going, when you're transforming your mind, there's this aspect of going, you know what? I, I'm trying to figure that out. So let me test and see and learn. And then God, let's let you speak in and approve this. Or let's let the circle, the community of people around me speak into this as well. There's a trial and an error aspect of this, which means the renewing of your mind is not something that just happens on Sunday. In fact, it can't. It has to be a renewal that happens every single day. That Sunday to Sunday, I'm spending time in Christian community and, and daily devotion in scripture, inviting God in, praying, going, God, like, like, would you give me purpose and direction every single day? So now it's reasonable that I'm going to, in everything that I do, live all of my life giving to you because I'm letting you renew me every single day. Now, now there's different ways then that this begins to look in our lives. Like you might go like, yeah, I'm gonna love Jesus in every aspect. And so some people, they've chosen to be like, you know what? I'm gonna go open a coffee shop and it's gonna be called Hebrews. Or, or it's going to be called, you know, common, common grounds. Like, oh, no, no, let's call it holy grounds. Get it? The pun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, you know, it, some people take it. They're like, I'm going to put a fish symbol on the back of my car so that everybody knows that I'm a follower of Jesus until they realize they have road rage. And then they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm not, maybe I should not have that fish symbol on the back of my car, right? Or, or maybe it's somebody that they're like, they're like, yeah, I'm living every day for Jesus. And so the holidays are coming up and somebody walks up to them and they're like, happy holidays. And they're like, I think you meant Merry Christmas right? You all know, like, you know, there's ways that we do this that are just, they're not the best ways to do it. Okay. When, when G, like you would think like Paul's going, gosh, here's all that Jesus has done for you. It's reasonable now to live your life for him. So test and approve. He doesn't go to any outward signs or any actions. He goes inside. Look at verse three. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, you should not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sober discernment. As God has distributed to each of you a measure of faith. For just as in one body we have many members, not all the members serve the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members who belong to one another. 
He doesn't get to go, hey, here's all the things I want you to go do. Look back at verse three. Do not live or think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. He goes, oh, you want to know how to begin to transform your mind, which is going to change the way you live? Be sober-minded of who you are. Live in uncommon humility. Be self-aware. Know who you are and who you are not. This takes discernment. It takes practice. It takes testing and approving. You see, if it becomes... If, if Paul instead was to take it to things we have to go do, then all of a sudden what we're going to do in that moment is we're going to jump into the comparison game. Right? We're going to immediately go, well, I mean, gosh, it's me against you, and so which one of us is living the more Christian, authentic life now? And, and we all know that comparison is the thief of joy. And so now I don't get to live this abundant, joy-filled life because I'm comparing myself. And I'm, I'm looking at other people. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, look at her success and how amazing she is. And, and I wish that I, but I'm just never gonna be that way. So I beat myself down because I'm comparing myself to them or I'm looking at someone else. I'm like, man, look at that guy. I'm so glad that I'm not like him. And I'm not, I mean, I'm doing better than, I mean, at least I'm not that guy over there, which is now putting them down and just making me feel better. And I've gotten into the trap of conforming to the world. Instead of going, God, how are you transforming me in the middle of this? You see, when I understand the first 11 chapters that God has saved me through Jesus by grace, to grace, by faith, from faith, to faith, all of a sudden pride goes out the door. Because I go, no, 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 this isn't a comparison game. I shouldn't think too highly of myself. And yet at the same time, that's only part of the story. You see, because there's one sense of pride where you think too highly of yourself. Then there's the other side, though, where you think too lowly of yourself. It's not a sober-mindedness when you go either direction. You see, on the one hand, we go, gosh, I was so in need of God, and he saved me. But there's this other beautiful thing that God does in Scripture where he goes, oh, did you know that when you were created, you were created in the image of God? And I put my image in you, and so you get to uniquely distribute or, or display to the world who I am and who I want you to be. Not only that, but if you're a follower of Jesus, then according to Romans and according to Galatians, you have become a co-heir to the throne of God. That makes you royalty in ways that I don't understand. God goes, yeah, yeah, you were lowly, but I lifted you up and I made you an heir to the throne of God. And according to the book of Genesis, God has created all things. And then he put man and woman there fully in his image to submit one to another and to go out and to take his raw materials that he created with and now become co-creators with him, the rest of humanity. And so God looks at you and he says, you are not only an heir to my throne, you are a co-creator in this world with me. That is a place of beauty and privilege no matter where you come from. You see, part of understanding who we are is understanding our need for God, but also the place that he's lifted us up to. It was Tim Keller who said, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And I love that juxtaposition. That I go, man, this is the transforming of my mind. That in God's economy, he looks at the measure of faith. That's what Paul says in the next verse. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, 
but to think with sober discernment as God has distributed to, to each of you a measure of faith. Now, we've got to unpack what is a measure of faith? Because there's kind of two ways to understand that. One way that maybe you would understand that on the surface is going, yeah, the measure of faith is like, if we're all a vessel that is there, God comes with his little like pitcher of faith that looks like the Kool-Aid man or something. And he begins to pour measures of faith. And he's like, okay, you're going to get that, that. That's enough for you. You know, I'm going to fill you up a little bit more. Like, you're just going to get a drop over here. Okay, you're going to now, now, okay, here's your measure of faith. I've given you each a measure of faith. Or maybe it's not that we're the same size container. Maybe it's that we're all different size containers. And so it's like, oh no, God fills everybody up, but like some just are bigger than others. And then, right? Now we're back at the comparison game. Well, but did I get as big of a measure of faith in you? And that's not what the gospel teaches. You see, instead, the way we need to understand this is that word measure right there is the same Greek word where we get the word meter from. I don't care where you go in the world. A meter is a meter is a meter is a meter is super close to a yard. <laughs> that, no matter, the measure of faith is the same. Oh, that's why our faith is in Jesus. It's because he's the one that goes, oh, when you've put your faith in me, the measure is the same. I've given to every one of you measure of faith. His name is Jesus. Faith in God to finish what he has started, that what he began in me, he will bring to fruition. So it's an equal measure of faith that is given based on the grace of God to us. Same lowly starting place, same level of royalty in his kingdom. But we're not supposed to do this in isolation. We're not independent entities doing it all on our own, but instead he goes, because of that, you need each other. I read something this week that it has stuck with me that maybe outside of grace, which is the most amazing thing in the world, maybe one of the best things God did for humanity was made us need each other. And it's so true of the church. Here's verse six. And we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If the gift is prophecy, that individual must use it in proportion to their faith. If it is service, then serve. If it is teaching, go teach. If it's exhortation, exhort. If it is contributing, do so with sincerity. If it is leadership, do it with diligence. If it's showing mercy, would you do it with cheerfulness? I love the way C.S. Lewis captures this in the Chronicles of Narnia. In that book, there's this moment where the, the four kids go through the wardrobe into Narnia, and that's a, a metaphor to represent them coming to have faith in Jesus. And then they get into Narnia, and very quickly, Father Christmas comes and distributes to each of them a gift, a tool to use. They don't understand why. They know what the tools are, they can see them, but in the beginning, they're like, ah, what, what, why, why, why did I get this one and not another one? And how am I gonna use it? And it's only as they continue on in the story and they grow in their faith and understanding who Aslan has called them to be, that then there comes this moment that they're like, that's why I have that gift. And now they can use it. It's test and approve again. And C.S. Lewis captures that beautifully. It takes time. And so let's unpack these one by one here. And, and we'll spend a little time on the first one because it's maybe the most confusing. It's prophecy. And if we look at, at prophecy, right, is different gifts according to the grace given to us. If the gift is prophecy, 
then that individual must use it in proportion to their faith. Now, again, this is one we have to unpack a little bit because people view it in all sorts of different ways. The gift of prophecy is not fortune-telling. It's not predicting the future. Now, we see examples of that in the Old Testament where the prophets are calling and they're going, God is directly downloading to them things that is going to happen in Israel's future if Israel doesn't repent. They're also, God's downloading to the prophets, things about the coming Messiah, all of these prophecies that come one, all 600 plus of them come true in Jesus. And so there is an aspect of prophecy that is that, except that the only thing left to predict the future on about God is when Jesus is going to return, bringing full grace and full justice in ways that I cannot wait to see how he beautifully does it. But the scriptures say even Jesus doesn't know when that's going to happen. So anybody that's trying to predict that happening is guessing. They don't know. And so it can't be this like fortune teller idea. No, prophecy has another meaning all throughout scripture. And is this sense of encouragement, of speaking truth into a moment. Are those moments where, where you just know God has asked you to go say something to someone and you're like, I don't want to be that weird guy. And you go do it anyway. Because you're going, God, you are in me and I'm going to go say something to this person. Now, we don't have to be weird about it, right? In fact, we can go up to the person and go, hey, I know I don't know you. Maybe you know them. And you go, but I feel like God has asked me to share this with you and, and take it or leave it. You do with it what you want. You don't need to go to him and be like, thus saith the Lord, right? Like, 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 no, like you've had people come and tell you that and you're like, that resonates. I think you just wanted to share your opinion on something, right? No, no, I can go and go, listen, God, I feel like God has given me this and I'm gonna give it to you and you discern with the spirit, what God has in this. And I'm gonna trust that the Holy Spirit in me and the Holy Spirit in them, which is the same spirit, can talk to itself and affirm in their life, yeah, that's from the Lord. And then go do something with it. I can think of a moment in my life that changed my life forever where this happened. I've shared parts of this story before, but in, in uh, high school, I was in a band. And uh, I played a bunch of percussion instruments. And we had a, a gig one time where we were at a church for a youth group. And we were both going to do like a little concert and a little worship set at the same time. And so we started with the worship set. And in the first song, our Michael, our lead singer, lead guitarist, his string broke. We were high school students. We don't have another Taylor guitar sitting off to the side in roadies to bring us a new guitar. The only thing you can do in that moment is stop and change the string on the guitar. And so Michael, like as soon as it breaks, the, the song ends and he just turns around and looks at me at the kit and he's like, Hickman, come do your thing. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, dude, I know you got something to say. And he knew that I, I had a Bible in my, I always carried a Bible in my back pocket at that time because cell phones didn't exist that had them on there. And so I always had it and I walked, I was like, okay. And I walk up and I pulled out my Bible and I grabbed the microphone and I just began to share what God had been doing and teaching in my life. And the things that I just began to preach in that moment. I know that I preached long enough for him to change the string on his guitar and probably all the other strings too that he needed. And then we did our thing. Afterwards, there was an older gentleman that was standing in the back and I'm up there putting all my instruments away and packing everything up and he walks up to me and he goes, young man, I'm probably 17, 18 years old. And he goes, hey, I just want you to know that I, God has asked me to come tell you that he's given you a gift of preaching and teaching steward it well and exercise it well. And I went, thank you. 
I didn't know whether that was true. But man, I hid that in my heart. And then I, the rest of my life, God has continued to affirm that and go, yeah, yeah, develop it, grow it, steward the gift well. That gentleman, what he was doing was exercising the gift of prophecy. He saw something and he encouraged me. Oh, if we would do that for one another. So that's the first one. Let's dive into the other ones. They're not as hard to understand. If it is service, then serve. Man, some of you are, are people that you just walk into a space or a room and you see the need. You love to just get your hand, you, hands dirty. You love to just serve and, and what needs to end. So you just jump in, right? This was Dane's sermon last Sunday of going, hey, just start to, like, just go, just do it. Some of you though, just have a knack for it. Like you can just walk into a room and you're like, that's how I'm gonna serve today. I'm gonna go do it in this way, right? The, the idea of teaching, right? Teaching is this beautiful thing of explaining doctrine and truth. Some of you are literally like, teacher, done. Like, that's me, I'm here, right? But it's taking going, how do I take a complex thing and explain it in a way that is understandable for people? Some of you, this, this is your gift. You're like, man, my entire life, I've just felt like that's what I do. I can take complex things and explain them in simple ways. And then he says, okay, this idea of exhortation, right? Exhortation is different than teaching. Teaching is explaining. Exhortation is calling and inviting. That's why this chapter 12, Paul starts with, I exhort you. I'm inviting you into a kind of life. Some of you can just walk in and you just, you, people are just drawn to you. You invite them into something. They're looking, they're like, man, what is going on? I want, I want what you have. And you go, great, come and do it with me. Like you just love to bring people along and encourage them and exhort them and invite them into your life. And then he says contributing. And another way to think about this is giving, right? It's those that just give generously. Now for some, it's because, man, God has given them much wealth. And so they are generous in that. But for others, in fact, some of the most generous people I know are the people with the least amount. And they're the one that are like, no, I'm tr still trying to give my entire life away. But you, you wake up and you're thinking about how do I just give all of this away? You see a need and you don't even, like, like some of us, we see a need and we're like, can I afford to help them right now? Others of you see a need and you're like, done, there, it's not even a question. Oh, it's the gift of generosity where you're just like, yes, I'm gonna do that, that's contributing. And then it's leadership. Some of you, God has given you the gift of leadership to step into roles and to lead and we should do so with some discernment and diligence because we all know the people that have led from positional places rather than relational places. To go, no, my act as a leader is not to get my way, but it's actually to serve the people around me. And so I'm going to go lead them in that way, leaving pride at the door. And then the gift of mercy. Man. Some people can walk into a room And you feel the temperature, not of the room, but of the person that's hurting in the room. I walk into a room, I can feel the temperature of what's happening. I work with people that I'll say stuff and they're like, oh, what you missed was this one person in the room that was hurting. And I'm like, yeah, I totally missed that. Because they have the gift of mercy. They just see and sense the needs of individuals. And so Paul in this section goes, if he hears these gifts, go and use them. Now, now when you see a list like this, it's always tempting to treat it like a, some sort of a holy Enneagram. 
you know, I've, uh, I've got the gift of generosity with a wing of mercy over here. Right? That's, that's not how we're supposed to do these things. Like that, that's just not, it's, this list is not an exhaustive list. In fact, there's six places in the New Testament where we see different lists, and every one of them is different. You can even go into some of the Old Testament, and you see gifts that are mentioned there. And so the, the, what I think Paul is trying to go is go, hey, listen, this, your gifting, it's not a tightly defined list. It's not a personality test that you go and get to pick one or two from. No, they're gifts that are given to you that you are to steward as long as you have them. Some of them, some of them you're given and and you get them your entire life. Some of them you get to use one time, like martyrdom. It's a one-time gift, (laughs) one time. Right, but but in there, there, there's 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 an arc to these. And I think sometimes God's like, I'm going to give you one. Let me see how you steward that. And as you steward that well, he goes, great, let me give you another one. Let me give you another one. And I remember the goal here is not to compare ourselves with each other, but to go, we need each other. And it's to find our identity in Jesus, not in our gifting. I remember about eight, nine years ago, um, the church I was at, the elders were ordaining me as a pastor, which is just a churchy thing that we do where it's like you feel called to be a pastor and you sit with a group of elders and the men and women there will look at you and say like, hey, yes, we want to affirm this in you, right? To encourage you. And so I don't know what happened as we were sitting in, in that time and, and they were asking me questions in like a very for me kind of a way, not in a gotcha kind of way. And the head of the, the chairman of the elder board, he said at the time, he said, Grant, we have no doubt that you have a gift in preaching and teaching. We've seen that in our church. How are you going to serve the church in the kingdom of God if that gets taken away from you? And I was like, I don't know. You mean that, that's, that's the possibility? I don't know why he was asking me that question, but I can tell you what God did with that question. Is in my soul in that moment, the Holy Spirit was like that you needed to hear that question because your identity is getting caught up in your gifting rather than in Jesus. Your identity is in Jesus. This is how you get to do things in the kingdom with the Spirit. And so with that, let's remember that every Christian has a gift. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a gift. It's one that God has given to you. Every time in all of his letters that Paul speaks of the gifts of the Spirit, he says something to the effect of, to each one or to every person is given. So you have one. Do you know it? Do you know what your gift is? Life as a follower of Jesus gets so much more fun when you do. It's that moment where you just, in a moment, you're like, I was born for this. Like this element right here, this is my jam. Like this is my thing. It brings you joy and life, even if it's hard. Because you're like, I'm exercising my gift. You see, I'm afraid that for some, Christianity has become boring because when they see Christianity, it's like, yep, I'm gonna come to church on a Sunday. I may or may not sing along in a song. I'm gonna listen to somebody drone on for 45 minutes about an old ancient dead text that I don't even know if it's really there anymore. And then I'm gonna leave encouraged. And I know that, I, you know what? I need some of that. I should probably like not cuss with my coworkers so much and not yell at my kids so much. What a boring Christianity. What is it just to come and change behavior? 
No, no, when the spirit of God comes in and I know my gifting and then I just begin to look at the world and go, how do I exercise this? God, give me opportunities and I do it. It gets fun because God starts bringing people into your life that you get to interact with and they make you better and you make them better and it is so much more fun because now I've been building the kingdom of God. One pastor I read, he said, God didn't save you to sanitize you and set you on a sanctified shelf. He saved you to send you into service. You know it's a pastor because there's a whole lot of S's in there. But it's a really good quote. God didn't save you to sanitize you and put you on a sanctified shelf. He saved you to send you into service. Everybody has a gift. But no one has all of the gifts. It's why we need each other. It's why the metaphor of a body is there. We, we need each other. Nobody gets all of them. And so this is the beautiful thing is we get to then take care of each other. Right? I think about just the way a body works, right? If, if my stomach is like, hey, I'm hungry, it's telling my brain that I'm hungry, and my brain's like, you should probably go drink some water because you're dehydrated, not really hungry. And so I do that, and then I'm like, no, I'm still hungry. So I, I wish in that moment my brain would just like send some nutrients down, and like I would be fine because, man, dieting would be so much easier if that was the case. But no, it goes, no, like, like now go to the fridge, open it up, like find, find the turkey, get your vegan mayonnaise because you have stupid allergies and your gluten-free bread and like go do this whole thing and, and then I'm gonna eat and, and now I'm, I'm gonna chew and it's gonna break down and now my body's gonna start to take and the nutrients I need, it's gonna keep and the ones that it doesn't need, it gets rid of and I'm thankful for that. And, and right, there's all these things that my body works together. We need each other. God uses the members of the body to care for each other which means that if I'm disconnected and cut off from the body of Christ, then I'm cut off from the full power of God in my life. We were designed to need each other, to work with each other. Oh, God may speak to me in solitude, but he doesn't want to leave me in isolation. I have to come and get connected because we need each other, which also means that if I break my arm, then the rest of my body needs to compensate while my arm heals. Which means that if I'm connected to the body of Christ and life gets difficult and I am, to use the metaphor, feel like the broken arm, there's no shame or no guilt or no condemnation. We go, no, come on, we've got you. Let us support you till your arm heals. And then when the next person gets hurt, you're healthy to help them. So we all have a gift, but nobody gets all of them. And then let's go ahead here to the third thing that we want to know. And that is that you specialize in some of the gifts. Usually the gift that you have is a specialization in something that all Christians have. Here's what I mean by that. Just because I don't have the gift of mercy doesn't mean I get to be a jerk. I should still give mercy and compassion to people. Just because you don't have the gift of generosity doesn't mean you get to be selfish and stingy. No, you should still live generous, sacrificial lives. There are things that as followers of Jesus, we all are called to because we lay down our lives as a reasonable act of service. But then together we get to specialize in them. Anytime I think about this, I think about my mom. My mom has the gift of prayer. I remember multiple times, but one specifically in college where I had had a crazy night and, and I was potentially gonna have another one the next night. And so I called my mom during the day and I said, hey mom, 
I need you to be praying for me right now. And she goes, what happened at 3 a.m. last night? I'm saying, are you a prophet now too? What's up? And she goes, about 2.45, our dog Tootsie was barking. She never barks in the morning. And I let her out. I don't know if it was a squirrel or a skunk. There was something outside. And she came in and I laid back down in bed and you were on my heart. I couldn't quit thinking about you. So I just started praying for you, God's protection over you, that he would be with you, that he would care for you, that, and that you would trust in him, not anything else. She goes, it happened for about 15 minutes, and then I got, I, it was done. My anxiety was gone, and I just fell asleep. So what happened last night? It's a woman that has the gift of prayer. God wakes her up in the middle of the night to go, I need you to be praying for your son. Oh, we all should pray. That woman specializes in it. So it leads to the million-dollar question. How do I discern my gifts? I see the importance. I see the need. We've, okay, how do I then begin to discern them? Well, some people might take you to some sort of a spiritual gift inventory to take. How very Western of us. <laughs> Let's take this mysterious thing from God that we can't really predict that may or may not be in line with our personality and come up with an algorithm so that I can go do it. Right? That's a very Western thinking. Those are good insofar as they might point you in a direction. And so, so if that's helpful, like, like use it, but don't let it pigeonhole you. Use it to test and approve. But then I think there are some things we can do. And so because I am a Westerner, I'm going to use a Venn diagram uh, to help us with this. And so, so here's, here's the first thing is, is up top, there's affinity. Affinity is what are you good at? Like, just, like, what are you good at? What do you like doing? What are you passionate about? What do you find yourself praying for? If you had all of the resources and all of the time, what would you do? You, you have the ability to do it. Go and, and do that, right? Maybe it's that thing that when, you, when, you, when I say like it fires you up, maybe it's like a sense of justice and you're like, yes, like I can't wait, I'm passionate. Or maybe it fires you up because it gets under your skin and it bothers you. And the spirit is trying to go, yeah, it bothers you. Why don't you go do something about it? What is it that you have the ability to do? Maybe something in your life has transpired and you go, man, because of my story and my life and my background, I have a unique experience that gives me the ability now to go serve and to help people that somebody without that experience couldn't go do it. Life was hard and God goes, yep. And you now have the ability to love these people in a new way. What are you good at? What can you build the kingdom doing no matter what your job is? No matter the paycheck you receive, oh, you can go and use your gift. But then there's ability, affinity, and then there's ability. I totally confused those for you guys, but you tracked me. There's affinity, what am I excited about? And then there's ability. What are you good at? What are you going for? That was me as a 17-year-old having a guy come up to me and go, hey, you have this gift. And I went, okay. I have an affinity for that. I'm passionate about it. I've always been the guy that literally in third grade, we were watching a video about how the world was created and it said something about all the gases coming together and randomly doing it. And as a third grader, I stood up and I was like, that's not true. God made everything. And my teacher goes, that's right. Class, ignore that part. I just, it's always been, I've always had an affinity. Oh, but God has then developed the ability. What, what are you good at? But then don't forget we do that in tandem 
with affirmation? What do people around you say, hey, you're good at this? We see that in you. I know people that think they're really good at preaching and they're really bad at preaching. Right? I know people that are like, God has put a song in my heart. And I'm like, great, he didn't give you the vocal cords to sing it. Like, go sing it somewhere, but just not on the stage. Right? Affinity, ability. What do, oh, this is back to being in community. Circling up with one another and going, hey, what do you see in me? What, what has always been there? Maybe is new. What is God growing me to? When you find that, you, you get your gold star in the middle. Like, that's where you get to hone in and go like, yeah, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm, I'm now honing in on a gifting I have. And then the fun part is go and try it. Test and approve. I think it's this. I'm gonna go try that. And if you're looking for a place to do that, start here. Start at Hope City. This is a, a place where, where you can go. I don't think it's my job to steward your gifts. It's your job to do that. But, but what does that look like? For, for instance, you're like, I think I have the gift of preaching or teaching. There's a second grade classroom right now that needs a teacher. And you're like, no, 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 I'm not called the second graders. Nobody is. <laughs> go find that in the Bible. You're called to preach and teach and there's second graders that need it. And if you can do it with second graders, you can do it with anybody. So go, go try it out there. Begin to develop it. I promise you, they're gonna be a lot harder on you than any of us are gonna be. You're gonna be better. You know what? I think I have the gift of encouragement. Tuesday night, middle school meets. Middle schoolers are mean. They need you to come and encourage them. <laughs> just, just come. Show up and be like, I'm here to exercise my gift of encouragement. Jacob will be like, yes. Oh, it's prayer, man. We've got prayer corners here that after every service, we have people that can come and pray with you always to encourage you, never to embarrass you. Just start trying it. See what the body of Christ does when you begin to exercise your gift because you have an affinity, you have the ability, and then we get to affirm it in you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for just the way you've designed us to be in need of you and of each other. What a beautiful thing. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen.